health is about more than just staying fit. And with every year that goes by, I'm becoming more and more fascinated by how what we eat can impact our health and our potential, with a particular focus on gut health and the gut microbiome. It's not just what I eat either, it's how I eat too. It's all connected. That's why I've developed my own number one living drinks brand. Number One Living is based on this idea, the simple notion that by putting our well-being first and improving the quality of what we put into our bodies, we get more out of life. My range of kombucha drinks are full of bacterial life cultures, designed for a happy and healthy gut. They're sugar-free, vegan and naturally sourced, so you can feel great on the inside and enjoy life on the outside. Choose from refreshing raspberry, passion fruit or our award-winning ginger and turmeric kombucha. The number one living range is widely available in Sainsbury's, Holland and Barrett's and Boots stores and online at numberoneliving.com. Grab yours today. Okay, on with the show. Hey, welcome back to I Am, the podcast that explores the possibilities and potential that we can access as human beings. I'm your host, Johnny Wilkinson. My guest this week is Dr. Dean Radin. He's a scientist with a strong interest in the paranormal. Dr. Dean has spent over 40 years diligently researching and putting some of the most challenging elements and accounts of human experience to the test. He looks to get to the bottom of that stuff that we go through or people go through that just doesn't seem to fit the rules we have and the narratives. In doing this, he's sort of constantly revealing new understandings for how life can work and inspiring new possibilities for us as human beings. And in this chat, Dr. Dean explains some of these incredible findings all of them proven under the highest, most thorough and stringent experimental conditions, many of them over and over again. So our conversation focused a lot upon the power we possess in who we are to greatly influence our world, simply through our desires and our state of being. It all centered around the potential of our intention. I'm really enjoying hearing from anyone listening in, so if something arises in you, thoughts, feelings or anything that you feel you want to know more about, do not hesitate to email me uh, on hello at iampodcast.co.uk or just leave a comment in the review section on Apple Podcasts. My name's Johnny Wilkinson. This is the I Am Podcast with Dr. Dean Radin. Dr. Dean Radin, thank you so much for joining us on the I Am Podcast. What an incredible and exciting opportunity this is for me, at least, and something I'm really, really interested about. Uh, first of all, how are you today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for asking me to be on the show. Oh, no, brilliant. Our pleasure, believe me. So the I Am Podcast is all about human potential and for us, it's about exploring deeply into that and letting it go wherever it goes. But also, I think there's going to be lots of stuff that crosses over here. I think, in fact, actually, the whole thing is is going to make sense and resonate. But would you be able to sum up what it is that you do, what it is you research, what it is that interests you, your passion? Because I know, you, you know there's so much of it. But how would you sum it up? I would say that I pay attention to the kinds of experiences that people talk about that are as yet not well explained in a scientific way. And when you do that, you discover a, a number of things about the nature of science in general. That science historically has mainly been a matter of observing the world, the natural world, things that happen, and then trying to come up with explanations for it. And the science has done extremely well so far. We, we've created technologies that allow us to talk across continents at what we're like 6,000 miles apart or something. <laughs> so 
The methods work really well for certain things, but they do not work well at all for other things. And we're talking about experiences that people have would suggest that some aspect of our minds, our consciousness, are related in some important way to the nature of the brain, the brain activity. But that's not all it is. It's something else. And it's still a mystery as to what the something else is. And I've always been attracted to anomalies and mysteries because that's the leading edge of the known. And so I've been studying these kinds of things for about 40 years, the, the, the anomalies that people talk about in their experience. And I'd like to say that we're a lot closer to understanding what these things are, but it's probably not true. As, <laughs> as we find in almost any field, the more you study about something, the more you realize what you didn't understand before. So the nature of the darkness are surrounding us is becoming a little bit clearer, not that it's becoming lighter, that we're understanding it, but the extent of how much there is left to learn is becoming clearer. This is really interesting, really, really interesting. And what a great way to kick this off, because I think from my perspective, I come from a world of competitive sport. I come from a world of mental health or crises moments and constant, almost dead ends to the previous model where it becomes challenged to a point where something has to give. And I think when you said that some things work really well, but it doesn't cover everything, for me, it's been those moments where everything seems to work well, it seems to work well, and then suddenly, bang, there's a moment where it just says, nah, it, what you have already cannot incorporate this. And if you blast on beyond it without including this somehow within a new evolved model, you're going to meet it again because you're going to stay where you are. And that's really, really exciting. What do you think has been or is still the present dominant model then of this worldview, the way that we maybe view ourselves as well? What is, what is it that has given that, us that opportunity to make great things in this world and get as far as we have? And where does the new challenge come from that needs incorporating, which obviously is what you spend your time doing? So what has brought us to this point is materialism. It's a philosophy that assumes that everything is made out of matter and energy, that ultimately the universe is, is random at, at its deepest level. And that gives rise both to a, a method and a way of thinking about the nature of reality. It also gives rise to a philosophy of nihilism. So if we live in a, a universe of matter and energy that's ultimately random, then there's no purpose or meaning to anything. Even though as, as humans, we need to eat meaning in a sense. We need meaning in the same way that we, we need food. We, without the meaning, we decline into depression and we live a pointless life. So materialism is very effective. It is the prevailing way that we study everything. In, from a scientific perspective, it is the essence of how civilization works as well. And it's in some ways works okay, but it also inflames virtually all of the human vices. And the, the primary one is greed. And so one of the ways of thinking about this is that our, our current worldview, at least within the West, the Western world, is that he who dies with the most toys wins. Wow, yeah. That, that's like the quip that captures this notion that if you die and you're completely extinguished and there is no meaning or purpose to anything, then the only way you can win this game 
that we're in while you're alive is to get the most stuff. And a case can be made that that is destroying the earth. We're killing ourselves as a result of, of this sense. I don't know how it is in other countries, but in the United States, the idea that a company has to make profit, that's embedded in our laws. So if you're the chairman of a company, you have to make profit. You have to return and uh, for your for investors, you have to give them something by law. This is a way of showing that the philosophy of the way that we think about ourselves and our place in the rest of the world shapes the way that the world goes. And so if we don't want to go extinct, we have better think about whether that worldview is correct. And so where is the missing piece? The missing piece is that when a physicist talks about developing something like a, a theory of everything, what they're talking about is a theory of matter and energy. They're not talking about the rest of the story, which is that we have personal internal experiences. It's like physics from the inside. So today's physics is looking at the external world and it's doing really well. It's not looking at the inside at all. And that's why within philosophy and in, even within the neurosciences, this notion comes about from uh, philosopher David Chalmers that what's missing is the hard problem. It's this problem of how does three pounds of neural tissue in your head give rise to your experiences, your subjective experience? Nobody has any idea how that is. So if we develop a good answer to that, we may discover that our worldview is actually correct in as far as, as far as it went, but there's a much, much bigger worldview that we need to take into account. And that would involve consciousness in some way. And this seems to be the, for me anyway, the general pattern of things is that what you find out is not that it's necessarily just wrong. You know, no one can claim that someone is wrong in the way they see the world. They see it from that subjective perspective. But as you experience things that enhance or expand that picture, and for me, those crises moments were expansion, I guess, opportunities to see that in fact, actually, I just had to evolve and to expand. And most of that for me meant loosening, getting away from that hardened, solidified perspective. What in your investigation, your research, you've been looking at, like you said, the, the stuff that is difficult to explain. What have you seen there that is opening up that bigger picture? You know, like you said, out of matter and energy comes consciousness. Well, it's like, well, how is that, I guess, understanding broken or at least challenged to the point of no return? Everything we know about matter and energy comprises 4% of the known universe. It leaves 96% right, okay. that we're calling words like dark energy and dark matter because we, yeah. we can't detect it. We don't know what that is yet. This, of course, is based on our models of the universe, which were developed based on that 4%. So our models could be completely wrong. We don't know yet. Probably not because we're able to do certain things, but you know, it's still only 4%. And this notion of expanding our sense of assumptions or a collection of assumptions, this is like the whole history of science. The people would come up with an idea of, well, now we finally understand the way things work. And then somebody will come along with something, an anomaly, generally, that requires an expansion. And when, when the expansion happens, we're able to look back and say, oh, what we thought was fundamental was actually a special case. And a good example here is the difference between classical physics and relativistic physics. So it required an expansion of what we thought the physical world was like. 
and then quantum mechanics comes along, we have to expand it again. These expansions do not get rid of our original assumptions, but we now see them as special cases. And so I would say then that what's happening then in terms of worldviews is that we're beginning to see that consciousness cannot be excluded from our models of reality. And so we're going to need to expand it in some way to include consciousness in the physical world. We don't know exactly how to do that yet, but that's going to happen. It has to. So the anomalies that we're talking about are suggesting that there's two aspects of, rather than using the word consciousness, which is a big word, just to say awareness, something about subjective awareness that is not bound by the everyday constraints of space and time. So that's a big one. So that includes things like telepathy and clairvoyance and precognition. In addition, it appears that awareness focused on aspects of the physical world changes the behavior of the physical world directly. So one thing then is transcending space and time. The other one is there's something about observation focused attention that changes the world. So that's the, in the whole realm of psychokinetic effects. So the curious thing about both of those phenomena, which, and these are based on subjective experiences that have been tested in the laboratory, is that both of those are also true of quantum mechanics. So the reason why quantum mechanics is sometimes called weird is because there, it reveals that there are connections that transcend space and time, that's entanglement, and there's a quantum observer effect, where the way that you observe the world changes its properties, or at least reveals properties that weren't settled before you looked at them. So some people would then say, well, it's just a coincidence. The quantum mechanics, the two weird things are the same two weird things that people report. And I would say, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that what's happening is that as science advances our understanding of the physical world, we're beginning to bump into phenomena that we experience subjectively, which are those same phenomena. And if you continue down this track, like a, a parallel track of understanding the world from a physical perspective and from a mental perspective, I think these are not parallel. They actually are converging. So sometime in our future, provided we're all still here, we may actually find that they completely converge. And we understand mind and matter from a, a probably a very different kind of direction where we see that in some respects they are the same. It's the same thing from different directions. So I like this metaphor of two sides of the same coin. There's one thing, and depending if how you look at it, you either see matter or you see mind and they're tightly correlated with each other. This, by the way, is a philosophy of dual aspect monism. That's what it's all about. There are two things which seem different, but they're not really that different after all. Yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. I think um, from my perspective, the beauty of this for me has been that constant balance of, or even movement of, yeah, I've got it, I know now. And then you get the next obstacle, which causes you to have to grow and have to expand or adapt or whatever it is in order to push past it. But it's then, oh, I've got it now. It seems to be that human condition to say, right, we've got it. Yeah. And it's actually that grasping onto what we've got and heading strongly with it that actually flares up the next challenge. I think it's necessary to actually have that, yes, we've got it and now let's really push it. And then you find what you want. And I think that's been, certainly with my career, there was an obsessive nature about it. And there was an obsessive nature about this achievement. You mentioned about those that die with all the toys. For me, it was achievements, whether those toys were 
more reputational recognition based or status or power or whatever it be but heading into that with such energy and conviction is what led to those big crises moments of depression anxiety panic because of that sheer weight behind it that led to that I guess the friction of meeting something that just cannot be that appeared insurmountable. Why is there, do you think, in your opinion, with all these things coming up, and I know it's it's impossible to hear someone else's story about clairvoyancy or whatever and actually just say, oh, well, I believe it or disbelieve it. It doesn't necessarily get you any closer to that experience. But with all the things coming up, why isn't this kind of opportunity to see the world bigger such a widespread thing? Why do people ignore this opportunity when it's been presented in so many ways and, and I guess you know it, why are things like the law of attraction and these intention-based ideas why are they still perhaps slightly stigmatized in this sense of oh it's that kind of stuff you know come back and join us in the black and white rat race here of you know, what's what's happening there is it moving yeah it is moving but there when you're when you encounter something which doesn't fit your worldview and causes a crisis there's two ways that you can respond to that one is that in some respects, it, it challenges your beliefs. It causes it, in some respects, it, depending on how strong the, the event was, to shatter your beliefs. And then you have to reintegrate it. You have to like, bring the world back together, otherwise you go psychotic and you, you, know, you can't put it back together again. So that I would call a kind of a, a mental expansion. You're expand, you're, you've expanded your sense of what is real. So most of it is probably still pretty much the same, but there's now new elements of it. So it yeah. doesn't need to be scary. It's just something new, like, you know, what else is new? But there's another approach. And the other approach is that you begin, you, you have an experience that kind of feels shattering. You might even talk to people about it. And then you forget it. And then worse, you deny that it ever happened. And that's when the, the fear rises to such an extent that you can't, it, you can't allow that to happen. And so it doesn't. For you, it's gone. So both of those are pretty common. For people who have an experience, they are shattered, they may or may not actually tell anybody, even if they've reintegrated it into their existence and somehow. And that's part of the stigma. That if you say you saw a ghost, you had some kind of a precognition or something, you're afraid what other people will think, not realizing that they've had the very same experiences. And they don't want to tell anybody either. <laughs> and so I, I've experienced that many times where, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not shy about talking about these things because it's what I study. But I'll just meet somebody in an airplane or something and I'll say, oh, what do you do? And I'll, I'll tell them. And they get a funny look in their eye. And, and then after, after talking for a while, especially if, if beer is involved or some kind of alcoholic <laughs> drink, yeah. they'll say a very common phrase. I've never told anyone this before, but... And then onslaughts of psychic things. And I say, oh, well, have you, have you told your spouse about this or family? No, I've never told anyone. And what's, what's funny from my perspective is sometimes they're dramatic psychic things, but oftentimes they're very mundane. Like somebody had a deja vu and it just shattered their experience. Like think, oh, what is happening here? I'm like living simultaneously in two places at the same time. Or, he said, no, this is like everybody has this experience at one point or another. They just never thought about it or never bothered to ask. So part of the taboo comes about as a result of the strangeness of the experience. People don't want to 
be seen as strange unless you happen to be inherently eccentric, and then you'll push it. But most people want to fit in. The other reason is that uh, for people who go through the academic world, and especially want to become spokespersons for science or academia, this is a major taboo in the academic world, primarily because we don't have a good explanation for it yet. So if science says, this is impossible, your mind cannot transcend space and time. And, and there are spokespeople of science out there who say that. This cannot be because we don't know how to explain it. Like it would violate everything that we know, which is completely not true, but that's the way that it's explained. And if that were true, then the only way you can explain somebody's strange experience is saying they're either lying or they're distorted or some way, or it's flawed. Something's wrong with it because it can't be. Well, that's said again and again, eventually people begin to accept that. And that's why they're reluctant to talk about it because they had some experience that scientists are telling us it doesn't exist. That sustains this taboo for a long, long time. And it's culture specific. So in Western culture, you cannot talk about these things openly, easily, especially not in the academic world. One week from today, or actually the end of this week, I'm giving a talk in India where this is like no yeah. big deal. Like what's, you know, <laughs> why would you even not want to talk about this? It's very interesting. This is also true for most of Southeast Asia, South America. Is something about the, the band within the Northern Hemisphere called the Western world that just finds this so frightening that it, it doesn't want to deal with it, which is a pity. What I recognize that came with those, you mentioned the denial and the fear and the almost there cannot be this, this challenge because it, I need it to be so clear. I need it to be so correct and so sort of functioning my model that I cannot have anything in there. So if something comes in, I have to shut it out. This is so, I guess, relevant and pertinent to my experience because the opinions I felt coming were getting stronger. So as I became more fearful, I became so much more opinionated, so much harsher, so much more ruthless with my judgment. When actually what I was crying out for was, I guess, what I wasn't giving to anyone else. And I feel like there is an openness about life now that doesn't rule anything out, but certainly has this, I guess, a bit of a, a hesitancy to put your foot down and say, this is how it is anymore, because you're just so used to seeing so many things that, I guess, conflict with any kind of rigid, structural, black and white, yes and no type stuff. And that involves everyone you meet in relationships and everything. I'm, I find that fascinating that almost for me, it's opinions that kind of, I can recognize when I'm in a fearful state because I'll, becoming, I'll become very opinionated and rigid about what must be. And that, I guess, humility I find endearing to people around when I find myself near someone who has that humility about who, who they, they are, that, that kind of openness. I find it very endearing. I find it very easy to be around but I wonder with regard to speaking about human potential, that this, you mentioned who dies with the most toys, maybe this need for us to know who we are, this need to know is something that's working in that area as well. Is there a part of science now that, that and is it in the quantum side that enjoys being able to say, we don't know, 
And can that exist when there's this, maybe is there a need from people to rely upon science, whether it's the science by medicine and doctors in those areas where there is inherent fear, you know, the, the world, what's the meaning of the world? Well, there's fear there. The darkness, as you mentioned, the unknown, we need reassurance from you people in those, in those white coats, give us it. What's that relationship like and how do you see it? It is frightening to not be certain. We, we, we strive for certainty because it's comfortable. Even if what we're being told is not particularly pleasant, we would prefer that to the ambiguity of not knowing. It's even more frightening if authorities say, we have no idea what that is. So we're, you know, we're, we're looking for, for a way to feel comfortable in a world where uncertainty is just everywhere constantly. And it, well, who wants to remain frightened all the time? So I kind of imagine, just to give one example, that one of the reasons why governments around the world have denied the existence of UFOs for so long is because the truth is we don't know. Nobody knows what's going on with that. And it, it creates uncertainty in the world. And they say, well, what, is it going to harm us? What, what, we don't know. So this is true also for things like you, you have a strange experience. You don't know exactly what to deal with it. You don't know if you talk to other people about it. Some people will make fun of you as a result of talking about these things because that's what the, that's the norm. And so people learn pretty quickly that, you know, be, be careful who you talk to about these kinds of things. And it doesn't just have to be psychic. It could be any kind of experience. We're social creatures and we need to fit in because if you don't, that's also an uncertainty. So I think most of it is actually driven by the fears, fears of the unknown, fears of ambiguity. With the conversation we've been having around potential over the, the podcast we've done, the series we've done, this unknown has become a huge part. The understanding that potential needs to essentially come from the unknown. If you, if it comes from what you know, it's a, if it's a, a sort of modulation of what you already know, a different sort of coming together of stuff you've already got, then there's no growth there. So when I talk about from a performance level, if you're ever in that zone space, in that absolute engagement involvement, where it's intuition, it's inspiration, it's all these things which suddenly start to make sense when people talk about it's coming through you, it's not yours, it's coming through you. We become almost like a channel or a receptacle for this incredible intelligence that that unknown plays such a big part. And when we are able to relate to it in a different way, we almost open to it to be able to communicate more highly with it. And I think sometimes for me in this podcast, what we're experiencing here is this understanding that we need maybe, or perhaps we can benefit from ourselves becoming more unknown, which aligns us with that external or not external, but that, that higher intelligence. But when we're in that space of absolute knowing, for me, looking at my career, there's no way I was willing to go anywhere where there was possible humiliation. As I got older and more established, basically in my ideas, if I was, I w took more, less and less risks. You know, like the idea that I would go to a, for example, one of the things in our game was that I, I performed was that I was a kicker. It was an individual part of the team sport and all the, all the moment comes down to you as it would do in American football or anything. And should you, as I was younger, I'd have said, yeah, I'll just, I'll kick balls anyway. Why don't we have a competition, you and I in training? As I got older, I would never compete with another player. Because 
I could lose. Whereas when I was younger, it was just, yeah, but I, let's do it. It's the unknown. Let's go see what happens. And I, I, I wonder if this is, this is sort of bringing this up in me. And is there part of this, we're looking at the world to see how the world works, but are we looking at ourselves equally in that scientific side? I know you mentioned I really want to get onto that observer effect as well in terms of the sheer power. And it is not to add to the nihilistic kind of view, which can happen with this, but is there much outside of us once we start looking inside of us? You know, are, like you said, two sides of the same coin. Are we not looking at that same, you know, that same coin in that respect when we look inside? Yeah, we look inside far enough, you see that it's infinite. You look outside far enough, you see that that's infinite too. Both of those are a little bit frightening because among other things, it means that your identity, who you think you are when you refer to me, that has a certain shape to it and a certain size. And the older you get, the more important it is to maintain that. And you see this in the academic and the scientific world very clearly, especially for academics who have established themselves for being experts in certain areas. That becomes a kind of a status quo. And they re status quo never likes to change, even if it's not even a particularly good status quo. It still does not like to change because it becomes the identity itself. People in the arts, whatever kind of art it is, and athletes both encounter this idea that uh, you have a certain degree of, of identity that you can bring to whatever it is that you do, but you know that at the best performance, whether it's within athletics or in art, it is not you anymore. It's, it's you and something else. But of course, how many people are involved in the arts and in, in, in athletics, especially at a high level? Not that many. So I think the majority of people out there gain a certain comfort and certain identity for being a certain way. And if you're an adult and you have responsibility with children, you can't, well, to be responsible, you can't act like a child because the, the children don't need that. They, want, they need some more structure to it. And it's very easy then as an adult to forget what it's like to be childlike. It doesn't mean to be childish but to be childlike. And that's this, this innocence, this sense that when you're younger, let's just try it, let's do it. Well, that's kind of like an artistic way of being, right? You know, who cares about conventional constraints and status quo and all that? You're like, your whole purpose for being is to break that stuff. But again, how many people do that and do it consistently? Not that many. So it, the same is true in science. You find some scientists are iconoclasts, kind of like me, and I don't really care what other people think. I'm more driven by the, by the curiosity of it. Something is strange. Let's study that. In a lot of contexts, you're simply not allowed to do that. I think what we're seeing as a result of COVID and the, the great resignation, as they call it, where people are just leaving in droves and say, I don't want to do that anymore, because you've been forced to take another look at your life and decide, well, what, what am I doing? Why have I been doing that? I don't want to do that anymore which I think ultimately is very healthy. It's I mean, give people back in a sense, their own power to be able to explore the world as they wish. How that ultimately spins out over time, who knows? We don't, we don't know yet, but uh, as a way of helping to break the constraints of expectations, I think actually it's a very promising sign. I heard it spoken about COVID and in a very, I think, a deep and thoughtful way that things like this come to challenge systems 
our systems are on a global scale, on a national scale, or international, national, but also business-wise, and then family, you know, family scale, mini communities, but also within yourself, the systems we've created within ourselves. And like you said, you see something, and with all the tragedy of it, there's no way you can possibly emotionally position this to do it justice for all those that have suffered and, and continue to. But there is something about that kind of situation which creates such a self-contemplative, introspective reaction that causes this. It's almost like the intelligence of that challenge. Everything else that would allow us to still get out and do things and not have to face these things, you would get some bits, but it wouldn't hit so hard. But like you said, it's it's almost too eerie, like you said about before, in terms of the coincidences in your world. It's almost too eerie to think, well, it can't just be you know, just something that randomly happened and you know let's deny it or let's let's move past it and get back to how we were i think it's it's powerful in that you also mentioned about that kind of need for assurance earlier and it really rung with me in terms of it doesn't matter if we don't like it or if it's tough to hear we and that reminds me again of something going on in me in terms of that system i was talking about that you can feel is it that that voice that you hear so often you head it's not necessarily an enjoyable voice it berates you it and yet we still listen because in a way at least it's nice to know where we stand even if we stand in a place we hate it's good to hear that and i think that unknown for me and that vulnerability is such a big big space i find it absolutely fascinating and, and to move on to this next part through those that same lens you mentioned at the beginning in terms of the material and the energy sort of fundamentalist view of things and for me it's really interesting that I certainly feel I identified myself on that level. That's how I, you know, I very much, I am my body. There, you know, Certainly earlier in my life, I am my body and my mind was kind of like, okay, I'll get to that at some point. But basically my physical, it's all the physical side comes first. I guess the changes me is coming to explore a little bit the identity, not without the physical, as you mentioned, but that includes the physical and moving into that space of what else and some of the things you've mentioned about the or, or that you study around the mystical the magical in some ways and these challenging areas I also find very very exciting because they start to point to that huge area of identity and our impact upon life that is so far beyond the physical of that one plus one equals two stuff it is the the magical stuff you've seen, I, I did hear that that you'd sort of studied in terms of some of the almost yogic superpowers. I find that very, very fascinating. As an athlete that wanted to be able to do amazing things, that was always something I figured I could maybe conjure up before I finished playing, you know, some kind of ability to do it without without touching the ball. But what have you seen in your world that, that sort of, in terms of personally, that really leaves that just physical line alone? What, what, what sort of sends you into that bigger space? Has there been anything very impactful? Well, we don't want to deny the physical because it, it, it's there. Of Even if it's an illusion yeah. of some type, it's quite a pretty persistent illusion and we can't ignore it. <laughs> so the idea that there's also some kind of mental interaction with it, it's very clear, even from research on meditation and research on things like mental healing and psychic healing, to say nothing about psychic phenomena, but just just 
the mind-body connection is extremely strong. I think the, the things that I've seen partially from a study of magic, and that there's different elements to magic which are relevant here. The one I'm talking about is the so-called force of will. Your, your will, your intention can change things out there in the world. So I remember one time watching a, a Tiger Woods do some golf championship. And so he hits the ball, the ball is, lands maybe 10 feet from the, from the hole. But there's right between the, where the ball is and the hole is a leaf that, that fell down right, right in the path that he wanted to go. Well, he's, he, he couldn't touch it. I think he wasn't allowed to touch it or something. I don't know. I, I don't know why, but it just landed there. So he's very intently studying what, what's going on there. And he gets a kind of a funny look in his eye as far as the camera can see. And the leaf goes away. He hits the ball and it goes in. <laughs> so you, know, you, you start wondering, well, he couldn't have blown it from that distance. What, what happened? There are enough experiences like that that certainly happen in sports all the time, which is yeah. really weird things happen. It just made it work somehow, which if you, you look especially in certain martial arts and within the yogic tradition, that the mind can overcome physical barriers, can make things happen. That's what the cities are all about in, in the Yoga Sutras. It's, it's that the mind can transcend space and time and there's a whole variety of different kinds of cities that result as, from that. And the mind can also transcend the physical limitations. That's where you get things like levitation and mind pushing matter around and all kinds of things generally that we can't see in the laboratory or that we haven't. But I would say elementary scale things we, we, we do see. So both on the mental side and the physical side, yes, the mind can transcend space and time. That's not that difficult to test in the laboratory. The mind also appears to be able to at least push the probabilistic nature of the physical world around. So lots of experiments suggest that. What we don't see in the laboratory are the, the, the things that we see in superhero comics and movies where mind is, is able to do things like levitation and flying and that sort of thing. So traditionally, those are talked about from thousands of years ago. I, my guess is that if those are real phenomena, and I'm sort of open to the idea that it might be, it's probably extremely rare that there are some people who can do that, but maybe one in a hundred million can do that sort of thing. They would probably know that they're able to do that because they see it happen. They would also realize that you don't demonstrate that because you would be hounded quickly. And so people, people with that level of exceptional ability, I'm talking mostly on the mind matter side, they're among us, but they don't talk about it and demonstrate it. Whereas on the mental side, lots of people are talented in this domain and they, they can do things like more or less conscious clairvoyance and conscious precognition. They can, they can do it. The ones I think that are most successful are the ones that we know as highly successful in the entertainment world and business in sports in music, all of those domains. There are people who can do things it's, it's not expressed as some kind of spooky psychic thing, but just as, wow, they're incredibly successful at whatever it is that they do. And so I know this because I've talked to a lot of people in very successful domains, and privately they will admit that. <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't talk about it publicly usually, but in private, yes, yeah. So like one, this one doctor I know 
who is like a, a master diagnostician. You, you go to them and they look at you a little bit and say, oh, I, I know what your problem is, it's this. And they're right. And like nobody else saw that. Well, how did he figure that out? It's because they look at you and then they say, well, excuse me for a few minutes. They go into a closet with a pendulum and they're doing some kind of a divining exercise with a pendulum to, to access their intuition. And that's how they get the information. And then they come out and say, okay, now I know what, what the problem is. And they're right. That's astonishing. I, I think it's really interesting the way that you've brought that back to what might seem almost like the banal to us, you know, like watching someone on TV and people say, oh, he's a genius or she's a genius at the sport. But you don't realize that, yes, there is an element of genius in there. And the genius is, you're, the genius doesn't, I don't think from my encountering of geniuses in the sports I play and, and have watched, they don't seem to know more than anyone else. They play by different rules almost they they just they don't see through that sort of same path of this is how it is and you have to run all your ideas through that machine to get whatever you can out the back of it they just say well ignore all these ideas about how it must be and just go and and allow it to be and i think that's really really powerful i, I the the identity part especially when you talk about space and time how I think it's important at some point when you say that it is quite easy to study in a laboratory or not easy is the wrong word, maybe more simple than other ways, but it is something you can do. And what I love about your work is that you have, you certainly have this open-minded and, and energy about yourself, but also when you research, you obviously know how to research according to all the scientific procedures and principles you know it, it's it's locked up it's it's tight and I, I really enjoy that can you explain just because i think we can talk about that in a way of saying oh well it's you know it's, it transcends space and time but that's huge in terms of a model breaker for me i mean just to even it's it almost seems impossible to imagine beyond space and time what is is that again we're talking about why isn't it this sort of creating these enormous paradigm shifts everywhere that when you get that information, but you're breaking space and time. Is that, is that, how big is that? And how, and how, when you say you, you can measure this, could you give us a quick example of that that would help people understand? Well, it, it is gigantically important, especially if you were before Einstein, because then it would be considered to be impossible. <laughs> After Einstein, it's not impossible. In fact, there are many experiments that showing that he's right. The time, space and time are, correlated with each other, and they're both flexible as well. So we know that that's the case. The, the question then is, well, does it also happen at the human scale, where we don't have enormous amount of gravity or speed or other exotic elements of the physical world? Well, the answer seems to be yes. And there are even many, all of the equations of, of physics, almost all of them, with one or two exceptions, are time symmetric, or even time doesn't even come into play in the equation. So we know, at least at the deep physical world, that things like time, as we ordinarily experience it, it's not like the clock. There is no clock in elementary particles. So there's no inherent thing that says this is impossible, that you can't know something in the, from the future or you can't know something from a distance because space and time are flexible. So in the laboratory, if you want to see this, there's a, a, a probably a six or seven different classes of experiments which are able to demonstrate this. 
one of the one that I developed, which is relatively easy to do and it has pretty robust results, involves not asking somebody to try to outguess a future event. Because the moment you ask somebody that, even if they're open to the idea, they start immediately questioning, well, how in the world am I going to do that? So instead, what you do is you wire them up to look at their physiology. So you look at skin conductance and pupil dilation and heart rate and other, other things that happen in your body that reflect what's going on in your nervous system below the level of awareness. So what's there, if, if you're meditating deeply, you could probably get it. You, know, you, can, you can feel your heartbeat if you're really quiet. Normally you don't feel it, but it's there, obviously. So you, you wire somebody up to look at their unconscious responses. You sit them down in front of a, a computer screen and you, like every 30 to 40 seconds, you present a randomly selected image. So sometimes the images are very calm, like a picture of a lake or something. And other times they're very emotional, like a car wreck or an explosion or something like that. So the notion is that our sense of now is typically around a half a second. Like we have a, we have a short window of nowness, moment, present moment. But if it's actually the case that that's sort of an illusion, like if you're a long-term meditator, your sense of now begins to expand until eventually that's all there is, is now. It expands way out. And that's where the term timelessness comes from. You also sometimes talk about a kind of spatial expansion, spaciousness, timelessness. So your, your sense of now expands so big in all directions, you say, well, okay, if that is ontologically true, not just an illusion of what's going on, but really true that you're really extended out in time and space, then when you're about to see something which is going to give you an emotional shock, because you see a picture that's emotional, uh, maybe there's some unconscious part of yourself that's already beginning to respond because it can kind of feel the future coming at you. So that's why we, we present a series of calm and emotional pictures with a very simple hypothesis that before you're about to have a, a calm experience, your nervous system is going to remain about the same because who cares? Before you're about to see an emotional picture, you're going to start getting geared up because some part of your unconscious is expanded out in time and you can feel it arriving. So you do this experiment where somebody sees maybe 30 or 40 pictures in a row over the course of 20 minutes or so. And then later you compare how did the physiology respond before the image. And typically the images are selected by a true random process immediately before they're shown. So like, like, a, like a millisecond before the thing actually appears, that's when it's selected. But what you can see in these experiments is that between one and a half to as much as 10 seconds before that image appears, your nervous system is beginning to respond appropriately. Lots of experiments like this have been done, almost four dozen so far in different laboratories. And you see the same thing again and again. For most people, you will see this kind of what I call a presentiment response, a pre-feeling response. Not, all, not everyone will show it, but when you take the average across lots of people in lots, lots of laboratories, it leaves very little doubt that there's some aspect of their awareness, which is usually below conscious awareness, which is feeling the future all the time. So how does this express in the real world? Well, this, I developed this experiment as a result of somebody describing an experience that they had. This is generally what I do. I listen to somebody's story and say, well, if that's true, how would we test that in the laboratory? So 
the most common story is that you're, you drive to work a certain way thousands of times and you come to a traffic light and one day you come to it and it's, it's green. So you're, you know, you're accelerating to make sure you go through it. It's green and yet you have the weird feeling saying something's wrong with this. I don't know what it is, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to slow down. And so the closer you get to the green light, the slower and slower you get, annoying everybody behind you. <laughs> get, let's go. And as you approach the light and you're about to go through the intersection, a truck barrels through the red light sideways and would have hit you, maybe killed you if you didn't slow down. So that's a fairly common kind of experience that people talk about. That's the common experience. The one I'm going to describe, though, is the one that, that gave rise to this experiment in the first place. And that is that I had a friend who liked to go hunting with his buddies. So they, they had a bunch of long guns and pistols and stuff. So two weeks before they were to go on this trip, he took his pistol out, which was a, a double-action revolver. The double-action meaning you pull the trigger, the, the hammer goes back, and the cylinder turns, and then the, the hammer strikes the next opening. So he takes all the bullets out, he's cleaning it all, and he's pulling the bullets back in. It's a six shot. And he he, uh, would generally leave the sixth chamber empty with the hammer over it, just in case so they wouldn't accidentally hit anything. It can't really, but that's how he did it. So he's putting five bullets back in, one, two, three, four. And they picked up the fifth bullet and said he had a very bad feeling about this bullet. So he didn't put it in. So what you have is the hammer over the empty sixth chamber, and now an empty fifth chamber, too. Only four, four bullets in it. So two weeks go by, they go out hunting, and they're not hunting with pistols. They left the pistols back at the lodge. And they come back, and they do what you should not do after you've been hunting all day, which is start drinking. Right. <laughs> so a bunch of guys are now in the woods in a cabin drinking. An argument breaks out between two of them. One of them grabs my friend's gun, which is just laying there on, on a counter, and points it point blank at this other guy and starts pulling the trigger because they're drunk and angry. So he intervenes. He gets between the two to try to, to stop it. And it's too late because the, the, the trigger has been pulled all the way back. The hammer has gone back and it goes click rather than bang. Why? Because it turned into the fifth chamber, which is the bullet that he took out. Yeah. So he said at that moment, he suddenly got this, this, horrific memory sense of, oh my God, that was the bullet that I took out. That would have killed me if I didn't take it out. So the, the joke he says then at the end of the story is that everybody has a bullet with their name on it and he knows where that bullet is for him. It's yeah. in the safety deposit <laughs> yeah. box in the bank. Yeah. Wow. So this is a kind of a dramatic story, but it, it, and I thought, well, you know, how do I test that in the laboratory without actually putting somebody at risk? Of course. Well, that's the experiment that I described, and it turns out it works. But, but even, even when you're telling this, the idea that your friend presents you with a story that then leads you to find an experiment, an experiment which unlocks something else, even on the less dramatic level, perhaps, I mean, the story is incredibly dramatic. And of course, I think the experiment is incredibly impactful. But these things, this sense of, I don't know, connection or perhaps... Uh, a deeper awareness, at least. And it's really interesting you mentioned about that sort of marking people up below their awareness. My understanding in terms of my experience with and relationship with meditation is it's about expanding that awareness to simply include more. 
so that the more I include inside my awareness, the more of life I'm aware of. Yep. But as soon as there's an idea of what I'm going to become aware of, I can't get there. I'm blocked by that idea of what I want to find. So it's that absolute kind of almost allowing sense of it. And I think in a way this is, for me, being being key to live in that space of the unknown and just simply move away from this idea about trying to control everything and, and become more open and more sensitive, I guess, to these little things, but without trying to identify them or label them. You know, it's quite easy once you hear things like this to walk around for the next 10 minutes and think, oh, I just felt that. I think I'm getting an you know, ESP, it's coming. That, that you don't get led down that road, but you simply open to life that way. And would you be able to incorporate just, I think it's so, so powerful, just briefly that observer effect idea because one thing that I think for potential that's really, really important for me is that you mentioned at the beginning this kind of the two models, the one that incorporates consciousness and incorporates ourselves and this kind of identity of who we are at the depth and, and the way that interacts and the infinite nature of the world. And the other one, which is which we have brilliant ways of working technologies and using it to create these um, civilizations and what have you. For me, those two things work brilliantly in my life for saying that when I speak about potential when I was younger, it was about achieving more of what I was already doing through the material. More potential was to say, I want to make the most of my potential in this sport. What did that mean? I want to win more stuff. I want to kick balls further. It all had a very relative and tangible, trackable thing. Moving the other way into potential, it simply means possibility. For me, possibility in everything, but in a way, a possibility that you can't get hold of because as soon as you you get hold of it, you you sort of turn it into something and then that's no longer it. And I'm just wondering, the observer effect you mentioned is really interesting to me because as I understand it, everything begins, or not begins, but everything at that deeper level is possibility. And yet the, the effect we have almost cements it or, or realizes it in some way. And I'd be interesting to see if, if there's anything there in how we realize it. Well, in a sense, you're talking about does the affirmations literature, is it real? If, if you are your intentions, your attentions, your wishes, does it help shape reality? At a mundane level, the answer is absolutely yes. That, that your, your attitude, what you wish for and all that, there's a part of you that is always striving to make that happen. All of our inventions ultimately started in somebody's head with, with an idea. Sometimes it gets turned into something. And so the, the, the whole physical world around us with all our toys and technologies and anything was somebody's imagination. So in that sense, yeah. So our imagination gets turned into the physical of world. Of course. We, we might see that though as, and we have the idea and then we must work on it and right. do this to it and do this to it, which has that kind of long form inventive process which i completely agree with uh, that's yeah that seems to i didn't even factor that in yeah yeah but the more interesting thing is does your intention manipulate the world in some way so as to bring that about with more likelihood that's what the affirmations literature is about so in the laboratory we can study that and the answer seems to be yes the, the effects that we see in the lab are generally pretty small in terms of magnitude but we have high confidence that the effects are real. We don't know yet 
how to describe it in scientific terms. And that's one of the reasons why it's considered to be a fringe topic. But that we can demonstrate it is, I think, pretty clear. And, and we've, I mean, the number, the kinds of targets that are used in experiments range from photons to, I mean, like particles of light, to the structure of water, to bacteria, to cell cultures, to animal behavior and human behavior and human physiology and random numbers and a huge range of things have been studied. And yeah, what you see is something like physical systems that have some degree of randomness or noise inherent to the system that can be pushed around simply by wishing it so. And again, this is considered completely heretical in any conventional scientific sense because that would be seen as making science impossible. Like, so what would happen if you had a $10 billion budget and a gigantic machine that produced trillions upon trillions of random events and thousands of people who are paid to study a certain idea? What would you get? Well, we call that CERN, and it's the, the, large, the large Hadron Collider. And you have thousands of people working for tens of years trying to find the Higgs boson, and sure enough, they find it, and it's almost exactly what they were looking for. Just so close to what the expectation was that it has led people, even at CERN, to start questioning what is going on here. Wow, like, I didn't realize like, that. I mean, like one of the problems with, with the Large Hadron Collider, with CERN in general, is that uh, there are complaints that they're not finding any new physics. You would think, okay, well, if you have a lot of people spending a lot of time doing an experiment where careers are at stake and tens of billions of dollars, to find a certain thing and then they find it and hardly anything unexpected showing up, well, that's an experiment. We do that on a much smaller scale in our own experiments in the laboratory, but it's essentially the same thing, that affirmations work at many different scales and that we are in some way involved in participating in the way that the physical world emerges. So when I talk about affirmations, people want to know, does, uh, does it matter what I think, like what I want? Say, well, in, in the magical traditions, and affirmations is all about magic, basically. If you really wished hard that you would like to have a gold-plated Mercedes appear in your driveway, and it is yours, will that happen? Well, so the answer is the probability of it happening would increase when you have that thought and you really focus on it and you intently visualize it and you really want that. However, in order for that to happen, something in the physical world needs to make it happen. Like a whole series of events need to occur for that thing to show up. And it's unlikely then to show up because it's a big hunk of metal and you know, where, where's it coming from? Who's, who's losing it in the process? So if, you're, if your affirmation or pushing your potential is such that it's going to require a change to a lot of other people's behavior, that's really difficult because all those other people have to agree. Otherwise, they're going to be thinking, someone's taking my Mercedes. I don't want that to happen. So you're going to have clashing intentions, which basically will wash out. But it still could happen if you're not entirely clear about what your wish was. So I was saying this once on an interview, and a, a friend of mine sent me this and said, here's your gold-plated Mercedes. <laughs> so this is a little, a little toy car, which is a Mercedes. And it's gold colored. Yeah. And so I, I got it. I got my wish yeah. because yeah. I forgot to say, oh, by the way, it's a real car. It's life size <laughs> yeah. and I could drive it. Yeah. No, but see, even the doors open on this thing, this little this car. 
So, so that it's an example of one of the one of the elements then in in pushing your will or impressing your will upon the world is to be extremely clear at every element along the way. And as I said before, at least within the magical traditions, to not override anybody else's free will because that's asking for trouble. There's some constraints then on what traditionally is okay to, to do in a magical sense because of karma or something like that. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. God, that's interesting because ah, that's that's a very different way of, not maybe different, but just a, a different description, explanation of it that really makes sense. In the sporting world, there's a difference between wanting to go into a game and wishing that you can just get through it and that it's easy. It never happens because it's against everyone else's will. It's basically like disrespecting the opposition to say, why don't you guys lie down? But then if you think, well, what if they're thinking about the same thing regarding me? It's like, I'm not going to lie down for you. This is Whereas when you go into the change room and you have that that will and desire to find out what you're really capable of, which includes amazing performance by the opposition to push you to find that new level. It's a very different kettle of fish. You find yourself in very spontaneous, very inspirational areas. You find yourself being, I guess, lifted to new experiences. And you're always in that. It's really interesting to work with. And obviously within traditions and the spirit, well, not so spirituality, but more in the intention experience, when it's vision that includes others as opposed to a personal desire which kind of sets me apart, there is much, much greater opportunity then. We spoke to, to a guest as well who was talking about how actually her experiments led to people intending amazing things for others. What she found was that, yes, the other had these great impacts, but almost without fail, the person intending had amazing impacts according to what they also wanted. But by mm. intending upon someone else, they had this amazing effect. And I think this for me is really interesting as well in terms of you mentioned about that communication with regard to the Mercedes is that a lot of, from my perspective, I talk about the effortlessness of a performance. When you mentioned about up, you know, trying to go up against someone else, having to make a lot of other things happen, it turns into a forceful, efforted event where there's a lot of manipulation and everything whereas like you mentioned the tiger woods you kind of like it's an effortless scenario and that side of it for me has always come about and it'd be interesting just to move this conversation to this direction now in that that effortlessness comes about in the absence of for me mostly on the field and in the rest of my life, in the absence of too much doubt when there is a sense of worthiness about your creative capacity, when it's not questioned, like you said, this kind of like, oh, if that has to happen, then you know, if you want me to make this happen with my mind, then I have to do this. But I'm actually fighting all my conditioned beliefs in order to get there instead of actually the effortless. Well, why not? Why wouldn't it happen for me? I'm me. I feel, you know, I'm here. I'm now. I'm alive. Same as everyone else. And why wouldn't my wishes be granted same as anyone else and yeah, the feeling in your body of feeling loose and, and able and, and the connection with others through feeling caring and compassionate. And, and that side is, for me, is, is what's coming from what you just said. I've not looked at it that way before because sometimes you just weigh it up to it worked, it didn't. Not probability. And we always talk about going into a game and saying, you want to give yourself the best chance of doing well. Well, 
increase the probability. That's right. Think, think this way, you know, and it's all part of that performance that we leave behind because we almost think, well, I naturally think this way. I'll just do more self-belief and banging my head with my fist to try and get me past it. What has all this research, what you've experienced personally in the lab, but also within your own, what's, what's happening with you and the way that you see life when it's, obviously it's going to be very much incorporated, I imagine, with the lab and what you want to do there. But how do you see a difference in you in the years that you've been researching? I would say that the, the primary change or evolution has been that when I was a kid, I read a lot, science fiction and fairy tales about and stories of psychic phenomena and so on, but I didn't really have any experiences that I remember. And we never talked about it in my family. And like, I didn't know anybody who, who thought about these from an experiential point of view. But as a result of studying these things in the laboratory and also having the opportunity to be around people who are quite talented, that I've had more and more of these experiences. Personally. So, I, so when you personally, say personally, yeah. so not even just meeting someone else and them telling you that experience, no. you mean actually? Yeah, personally. And I, I attribute it to essentially a, uh, a, a mind shift in the sense of seeing these things as not only possible, but like, it's not a big deal. Like it's, it's always here. Like when we do a, an experiment in a laboratory, we're not making it happen in the lab. We're allowing it to reveal itself. Well, that's a very different way of thinking about something. You can kind of force it and push it, push it, or you can simply sort of step back and simply allow it to, to be. And so in the mental space, it's similar that you become more open-minded to it. You're not afraid of it. You allow it to arise because it's probably there all the time anyway. Hmm. And that's, I think, why as time has gone on that I've simply encountered these kinds of things more and more frequently. I guess, and that brings up in me just this idea about being proactive about trying to spend time with those around you or in areas which encourage, like you said, this kind of environment you want and you become a part of encouraging that environment as you want. It, it does it does matter, like you said, your your influences and that's, that's really exciting. You mentioned about the, the nihilistic view that comes from that that material model or, or that kind of time-space model. You mentioned about you look inside enough, you become infinite. You look outside enough, you become infinite. I really love that image. When it comes to the apparent end in that nihilistic sense of, you know, like you said, when you die, that's it. What's happening in that field for you or in, in science? I mean, I know this is a very interesting one when it comes to actually measuring, but what, what's happening there in terms of the field of thinking and, and kind of future, even future research? Well, I think you're first asking about what is the nature of the evidence for survival of consciousness after bodily death? Exactly. The survival area. So there's something like eight or nine different classes of evidence that people point to, which suggests that something continues. So we're talking about cases of reincarnation, uh, near-death experience, and a variety of other things like that, mediumship and so on. So we've studied mediumship primarily in the laboratory, and we know that the medium's experience is that he or she is, is communicating with a departed loved one, typically. Sometimes they were never physical. It's just some kind of entity or something. In, in the laboratory, we generally will use a double or triple blind method to prevent the medium from knowing anything about mm -hmm. the sitter. 
the person wow. asking. Okay. So we use things like proxy sitters. So if the medium was reading you, they would have somebody who is not you in front of the medium to act as a proxy for you. And that's because a medium is more comfortable dealing with a human, even though it's the wrong human. So under those conditions, you then go back to the actual sitter and you, you give a list of things the medium said and you say, well, does any of this match your experience about dead Uncle Bob or something like that? And at the same time, I give you two transcripts, actually, one of which was the medium talking about you and another is a transcript about the medium talking about somebody else. And so if the medium was actually correct and connecting in some way with your departed loved one, then you would have more, you'd say yes more to that transcript than to the other person. So that's an easy way of keeping it as objective as possible. So those work. So it's like good mediums will be able to get better than chance in terms of the information. A really good medium will get a lot of it correct. And even occasionally telling you something that nobody knew, like like the dead Uncle Bob buried something in the backyard and never told anybody, <laughs> and you go there and yeah. there it is. Well, so we know that the mediums can get that kind of information. We don't know that they're actually communicating with dead Uncle Bob. It's, it's at this point not possible to know where the information is coming from. And it's also confounded by the fact that a really good clairvoyant could get the same information and have no experience of talking to dead Uncle Bob. They just pick up the answer somehow from somewhere. If you, if you go through all of the classes of, of evidence for survival, or at least of, of the brain and mind not being the same thing, it's all confounded, in my opinion, by the existence of psychic effects in living people. So this, this is a problem because we, it, it means that we can't definitively say if somebody has a near-death experience and they're floating out of their body and they're having all kinds of things and they remember it and they come back and they tell you. And so one way that they would tell you is that I had this experience of floating above the surgeon as they were doing something and it turns out that that's correct. We don't know that they had that experience when they're literally dead. They might have had it before. They might have had it afterwards. We know that precognition exists. There's, these are the confounds that come into play. The one area that I think is the most interesting in this domain is called terminal lucidity, otherwise now called sometimes paradoxical lucidity. And these are cases where people have been in coma for a very long time, or advanced Alzheimer's, or some kind of mental problem where their brain has been compromised and they, for all intents and purposes, they're a vegetable. They've been that way for a long time or they're just gone. Terminal lucidity is referring to the fact that sometimes, typically hours before somebody actually passes away, they suddenly become lucid. They're able to recognize people in the room. They have full memory of everything. They're communicating. It's like they're completely normal and then they're dead. So. This is very difficult to understand because we know from later autopsies that their brain was fried. Like it, it shouldn't sustain anything anymore, even to be able to talk. We have no explanation for that. So what that kind of suggests is that our, our models of the, the way that we think of people and the reaction of the brain as driving the bus, something about that is not completely right because these people are driving the bus and there's no brain anymore, at least not a working brain. So the notion of mind, brain, consciousness, it's, it's fluid, it's becoming more fluid the further we go along here. And so the second part of your question was, well, what's next? 
What's next is we need more than 100 people around the world who are trained as scientists to study these things. Yeah. Because at the moment, there's somewhere probably between 50 and 100 who are actually know quite a bit about the, the evidence. Wow. Yeah, it's very small because there's no money and there's a lot of social pushback that you shouldn't do this sort of thing. So it's difficult to, to make a field advance when you have very little money and very few people. So I think the next thing that will happen slowly, it is happening, is for more and more universities to have either centers for consciousness studies or you know, departments like psychology or sometimes philosophy or physics, where it becomes acceptable to study the nature of consciousness. Then we don't have 100 people. We have 100,000 people who are interested in this, as all students are, even faculty are, except as I said, they're not allowed to talk about it. <laughs> when, you, when you have a huge number of people who are now, of course, fascinated by these kinds of questions and allowed to study them and even have funding to study them, we make very fast advances, or at least advances, as opposed to looking back at the 150 years of research in this field with a, always a very small number of people. We've learned a lot by a small number of people. Well, just imagine then if this was funded to the same tune that physics is funded at, tens of billions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of people, we will learn a lot more much quicker. And I, and I strongly suspect then that we will begin to bump into things that today we would consider to be so strange and, and difficult to believe that we today, from today's perspective, we're saying that's ridiculous. There's no way that could happen. But I think, I think that's where we're headed. So among other things, besides knowing a lot more about the nature of consciousness and what it can do and our potentials and all the rest of it, I kind of suspect that we will discover that what we think about UFOs is related to consciousness in a very, some intimate way, that mm. it's, it's related in some intimate way. And the reason I say that is because I've, I've tracked the UFO field for many years and I know people who work in that area. And one of the, the sub rosa elements of it is that there definitely Whatever those things are, they are reactive to us. They know we're observing. They respond differently. Well, that's starting to sound interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, like, you know, what, what is it then? Are we collectively causing things to arise? Are we making, you know, what is it? Well, we don't know yet, but there's an element there that you could also then begin to see in every strange thing like crop circles and apparitions and the so-called little people that show up in the outback and in Great Britain and actually everywhere else in the world. <laughs> that there's, there's many elements of this, what amounts to folklore at this point, suggesting that our sense of physical reality is much more intertwined with subjective reality than we currently think. It's much more fluid. So we'll end up with something like a relativistic sense that Einstein found for physical world, something like that for the intersubjective world, the world that's, that's halfway in between physics and psychology. That's quite real too. And I think in many ways that is what forms the world as we experience it. That's fascinating. There's, there's so much there in terms of excitement and opportunity for the future even just talking about that subjective side when we talk about potential about exploring your gift and explore and, and in enhancing and expanding your awareness or allowing your awareness to expand so you can become more conscious of that more expansive entity of who you are and allow that to keep growing and growing 
And also talking about when you were talking about the science and the opportunity for more people to get into this and start enhancing the momentum and, and bringing about new findings and everything. It seems often that the funding is related to we want to find this out because there's there's a, some sort of money pot at the end of it. You know, there's a there's a driving need or but that driving need is in the mental health relationships, the the global communities in terms of people feeling their worth already. And even just hearing about those experiments in terms of the continuation of consciousness afterwards and everything, it has a sense of feeling of like it adds to your worth that you're not just in that nihilistic, I'm here, I'm gone. What was the point of that? It's it's all, if we were honest about this sense of wanting people to really understand their the chip power and their their importance and value of being here and being alive, that these studies are amazing. Just listening to you speak on every single level about, it's all speaking to me about possibility. There's been no closed doors. Each door has been a new one opened into new space. I find that absolutely fascinating, but it's almost like from a scientific perspective, it's an incredible pep talk. If I was going out to play a game now, I'd be like, this is brilliant. It's got me in a state where I'm feeling like, why not? Why not me? Go out there, be it. This won't define me. It can't define me. It's too big for it. It's just a, a beautiful process. And I think, yeah, that's amazing. I, I really want to thank you for that. And I really hope that for yourself that, you know, I know you do so many of these. You give so much of your time away in terms of these interviews. And I've, I've been exploring so many of them. But it's it's so, so powerful. So I just want to say thank you for you know, for all of that. Long may you continue to, your passion in this area continue. And, and you know, I can't wait to, to hear what is next. But I think for us, for me anyway, that side of the shift towards awareness and exploring that the inner and the identity and opening those doors and the boundaries, that's also part of maybe bringing about this shift in more people becoming interested in the science, more funding, who knows? And if, as long, if anything, then just holding that intention that that would be an amazing world and, you know, effortlessly bringing that about. I don't know if there's anything I've missed or anything that you want to say or anything that's of interest to you, but. Well, I just leave you with this thought that one time I did an experiment and I described the results and it was a pretty strong suggestion that mind and matter interact. I'm describing this to one of my friends, and he's, he said, I just can't imagine how they could work. <laughs> I said, well, that's your problem. You can't imagine it. <laughs> yeah. So in and th- and thinking about how do you expand your potential of what we, we individually and collectively can do, it really does come down to where are the constraints in your imagination? Can you imagine something bigger, something better? If you can't, or you find that you're, you immediately pull back from it, well, that's, yeah, that's the constraint. You're not going to be able to go past it. If you can't imagine it in, in, in a vivid way, that's very likely to happen. Or at least it'll certainly change the probabilities in the direction that that's going to happen. So in many ways, a coach, of, especially of a sports team, that's their job. Their job is to whip people up and imagine that, what, what you could do and then get past your, your fears and get past the inability to imagine. And therein lies every part of it. That's the work. It's not to learn how to imagine, but to remove what's in the way. Right. And to and just remove what is stopping you from that worth. And like you said, in, in the coaching, we see so often coaches talking about, if we don't win this game, we're in all kinds of, you know, and you're like, okay, so there's some fear. Yeah. And then also you've been useless. Hold on, so there's some anger. Yeah. Okay, we've got fear and anger at the base of this performance. When you're like, 
how's that doing for your your imagination for your effortlessness it's no, like well it's, actually I'm, i feel like my heart's gonna burst yeah that's like yeah. that would be completely backwards you know you might as well just just whip me just just whip it yeah that's no that's not gonna work <laughs> yeah exactly but that's what a point you know i think every one of these conversations especially this one it's trying to explain what the potential is and it's how to package it but it's all in there every part of it the mind the the, the emotional the personal the the human but then the scientific it's, it's phenomenal so i there's going to be so much for everyone in that just thank you for your time uh, an hour and a half has flown by and uh, you know i wouldn't have chosen to spend it any other way thank you dr dean raiden for all your time it's my pleasure so that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Max Creative, the executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. 